Matt, you're a former Marine Corps officer. You've spent seven years as a reporter in China. You've got a BA in China studies. You're fluent in Mandarin. You were senior director of Asia at the National Security Council in 2017, and then deputy national security advisor from September 2019 to January 2021. You're currently chairman of the China Programme at the Foundation for Defence of Democracies and a distinguished fellow at Hoover. So who better to ask uh, for an overview, really, of um, the present state of US-China relations today? Yeah. Well, look, I, I think that um, starting in 2017 and continuing to this day, there's there's been um, a recognition on the on the part of uh, the White House that uh, the assumptions that we held for many many years uh, failed to play out. Those assumptions included the idea that at the really that came into fashion at the end of the Cold War, that it was inevitable that China would would become a more liberal system. And, and in fairness, over the course of the 90s, uh, their, their economy did uh, make important steps towards liberalization. But we also thought that that would lead to popular demands for democracy, that, that the, the economics would feed into a political calculus, and that over time, it would simply become a friendlier and more liberal system. And um, uh, th that, that has not played out, to put it mildly. And in fact, it, it, it predates Xi Jinping, uh, this sort of authoritarian turn. Um, he's really accelerated the clock and, and taken it from authoritarian to totalitarian. But, but ironically, things really uh, started to make a U-turn or at least stall out uh, when China came into the World Trade Organization. That was a major uh, strategic miscalculation by the United States and by the West generally. We thought that that would be the starting gun for an explosion of more uh, liberalization. And once China came in in, in uh, 2001, uh, it stopped liberalizing because it had already achieved uh, access to, to the US and all the world markets. It, it, it actually didn't follow through on a lot of what it promised, but its economy grew tenfold. Uh, in in just the space of less than a couple of decades, quite amazing actually, and that has not weakened the party's uh, monopoly on power. It has strengthened it. Why? What what went wrong with our analysis? What where were we um, so wrong to think that the richer a country gets, the more uh, liberal and and democratic it gets? Yeah, I mean, in 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 fairness to ourselves, because I I was among those as I was I was a young reporter uh, working for the Reuters news agency uh, in the late '90s in China. I was very hopeful that that China was going to continue. It was an exciting time in China, right? It really was beginning to liberalize. You saw people who were able to move into city centers for the first time. They they were able to travel abroad. They were able to work for foreign enterprises and start their own businesses. It was a very exciting and heady time. I think we all got a bit carried away uh, and, and a bit hubristic in believing that, well, we, we, we've got a formula here. It's, it's inevitable. You know, if the Soviet Union, the mighty Soviet Union uh, couldn't keep it together and couldn't compete with the, 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 the model and the values and the economy of, uh, of uh, the American uh, free superpower, the, then you know, China was, was ultimately gonna have to follow a similar path. 
And what what was going on at the same time was the Chinese Communist Party was was quietly, very very carefully studying um, the, the the mistakes that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, and and trying to avoid that by allowing a certain amount of of economic dynamism. But but the remarkable thing about Xi Jinping is that when he came in, he he commissioned a couple of documentary films that were made and that had to be viewed by the military and party members. And, and the conclusion that he drew was that the Soviet Union didn't, didn't collapse because it failed to liberalize or that it didn't liberalize fast enough, but that it went too far with things like glasnost and perestroika. The, you know, the, 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 the sort of Gorbachev comes off as the villain in the narrative that Xi Jinping tells, including in his late 2012 early speech when he became leader when he, when he told the parable of the collapse of the Soviet Union, he, he cast Gorbachev as the villain. His view was, and he stated this in that address, was we cannot turn our backs on the legacy of Lenin and Stalin. Uh, you know, that, that, is what, that is what led to the historic nihilism that ultimately unraveled the great Soviet Communist Party and then the Soviet Union with it. So he's going back in time to try to forestall the uh, you know the, the collapse and and by the way that suggests that that there may there may be something to the idea that eventually if China does continue liberalizing it, it may uh, its economy it may uh, be forced into a more pluralistic system but Xi Jinping is quite determined uh, not not to take that road. Do you think China could be the great exception to the rule whereby uh, the richer someone gets, the more um, political influence he wants and and demands? It is so far. I think that if the United States and the West don't lose their nerve and don't lose uh, our our democracy uh, and maintain a certain amount of economic dynamism, uh, I, I think that we will be this constant pull that uh, becomes a reference point for many Chinese people who would like to see a, a more pluralistic system there. So I, I think history's that history has yet to be written. If we uh, uh, defeat ourselves uh, and turn our backs on our, our own great legacies, and uh, you know the United States is the the oldest democratic republic, um, then then China's model will will become uh, sort of the, the main the main game uh, for this planet. Now, you've said that Chinese foreign policy is focused on trying to expel the U.S. from East Asia. Um, where should the West's red lines be in East Asia? <laughs> it's funny. I was actually going to ask you, you know, red, red lines is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And, and that term red lines, I think it goes back to uh, early 20th century, uh, uh, a British phrase, uh, it, it might have been, you know, France and, and uh, the U.K., dividing up the Middle East, that that, that phrase red line comes from. That was done with I, red pencils, was it? I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. Perfectly, perfectly possible. Right. I mean, we've, had like, we've had lines in the sand, haven't we? Uh, you're um, in, in Texas in the 1830s. Uh, didn't yeah. um, Sam Houston or somebody put a line in the sand? <laughs> yeah, and so that's on. right. So there have right. been lines around. The drawback with red lines is sometimes uh, you, you don't sort of back them up. The classic example, obviously, being President Obama in uh, Syria. As soon as you say the word red lines, you have to stand by you them. You have so to back what, it. You've got to. So what is the story with regard to East Asian red lines, places where the US just simply can't, allow uh, China to expel you. Yeah. Otherwise, so I, you know, it, during my time 
serving as an advisor to a president and as deputy national security advisor, I, I, I thought that we shouldn't be in the business of, of drawing too many red lines or forcing the president to draw too many red lines um, uh, unless we were quite confident that we would back them. But what I would say is we're now, we're now in a situation where it, it feels as though the United States has no red lines right now. I'm, I'm quite, quite alarmed by what we've allowed to happen uh, in Ukraine, uh, what's happening in the Middle East right now. Um, we, we have, we have uh, failed to, to even call out the main actors that are causing us so much grief. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's, it's not the Houthis. Okay. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, last I checked, the Houthis don't actually produce, um, you know, anti-ship ballistic missiles using uh, Chinese and Iranian technology. So, uh, but they sure have a lot of them. Isn't that interesting? So we, we are shying away from, we, we're going too far in uh, shying away from uh, uh, drawing and enforcing red lines right now. And, and that's in several parts of the world. In Asia, I think that, in, interestingly, there's an exception with the Biden administration in that President Biden has gone farther than his predecessors in uh, drawing what he may not have used the term red line, but he's very clearly drawn one when he said four times on the record that he would send U.S. troops to uh, defend Taiwan in the event that China attacks. That, that is a red line. And I think he did it quite deliberately, quite consciously. Uh, in, in order to uh, sow some doubt in the mind of Xi Jinping, particularly after Vladimir Putin uh, showed how unimpressed he was with, with our resolve uh, when, he, when he steamrolled into, uh, in, into Ukraine in February of 2022. So uh, th that is one that has now been drawn. Uh, that, that red line must be defended, uh, both because the president has drawn it, but also because it would be wise uh, to, to defend it. And, and I'm hopeful that other presidential candidates, whether it's President Trump uh, uh, running again or Nikki Haley or, or uh, um, uh, Dean Phillips, <laughs> you know, or, or Bobby <laughs> Kennedy Jr., uh, not, no presidential candidate should back away from the line that has now been drawn by President Biden on Taiwan. Um, what would be the effect of a, of a war um, on the global economy, a war in which China invaded uh, Taiwan, or at least yeah. blockaded Taiwan, what would what would start to happen? Talk us through the sort of the sort of war plan of what would happen in what kind of uh, timeframes? Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the remarkable thing about that scenario, which would be really a catastrophe, is that it doesn't matter if you are uh, someone who really cares about democracy in, in the region or if you are just using sort of the cold math of real politic. It, 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 you know, this catastrophe has something for, for, for everyone. Um, and the catastrophe would start with a major disruption of uh, global trade, including the trade in advanced semiconductors. More than 90% of the world's advanced semiconductors come from Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is going to have a hell of a time manufacturing those uh, semiconductors in the event of a blockade because uh, even even though uh, semiconductors travel by airplane, so Taiwan could certainly fly those things uh, off to Japan and elsewhere, the electricity required to make them is immense. Um, I, I, I don't know what the latest figure is, but it's, it's somewhere in the order of 10 plus percent of Taiwan's electricity goes into semiconductor manufacturing. It might be closer to 14 percent. 
Taiwan doesn't, uh, Taiwan's got a lot of great resources. It's got some of the smartest people in the world, uh, just wonderful uh, people, uh, cosmopolitan uh, people with an affinity for, for democracy and capitalism. What, what they don't have is energy, okay? They, if, if China commits to a blockade, uh, Taiwan's gonna have to ration electricity pretty quickly. And uh, we will feel the effects of that in the form of a, you know, uh, global financial crisis type uh, set of reverberations. It'll feel like the COVID pandemic and the global financial crisis combined. Won't this be bad for China, though, China's uh, trades and China's income? Certainly. And, and probably China will be the first one to be uh, deprived of high-end semiconductors because Taiwan's not going to be doing China any favors in the event of a blockade or an attempted invasion. Those chips are going to, to the extent that they can flow, they're going to flow to other nations. But, uh, but China uh, would undoubtedly feel massive economic eff effects. But the way that Marxist-Leninists think is always in relative terms. It's always about relative power. I'll give you an example. Um, in 2021, after uh, you know we'd, we'd had a year or more of, of the COVID pandemic, um, a senior Chinese official commented that the effects of the COVID pandemic were similar to the effects of World War II, but he cast China as the winner, much the same way that the United States was the ultimate winner in World War II, even though we lost a half a million troops, even though uh, you know we 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 saw a terrible global crisis and huge suffering, the United States sort of emerged in relative terms as a superpower in the in the in the aftermath of that war. Chinese Communist Party officials have talked about COVID. This was before, of course, COVID uh, uh, really undermined their economy in subsequent years. But in 2021, you had Communist Party officials saying on the record, you know, th this thing has worked out pretty well for us. Uh, you know, COVID, it, 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 may have, it may have hurt our economy, but it hurt the other guys a hell of a lot more. And that's going to be the kind of thinking that's going to be operative in a Taiwan scenario. Where do you think the scientific thought is at the moment about how COVID started? Oh, well, look, the, it is very clear that the default um, explanation is that this was an accidental leak of a virus from a laboratory, almost certainly a virus that had been uh, partially engineered through gain-of-function research. Um, some of the documents that have come to light just in the last couple of weeks are incredibly meaningful. We've seen uh, a number of people who've been very uh, assiduously avoiding uh, making a judgment about where this thing uh, came from now saying it's quite, it's, this is as close to a smoking gun as we're going to get to a uh, accidental lab leak. Um, I, I think that's certainly the case. It's, it's conceivable that, that uh, some other information uh, comes to light, but it seems extremely far-fetched at this point. The documents that came to light recently are uh, the, uh, the uh, confidential applications that were made to US government agencies to make a virus almost identical to the one that uh, then emerged from the same city where they were going to be making, <laughs> making these viruses. And the, the array of, you know, if you look at the spike gene that they were going, that they were applying for US grants, uh, by the way, this money was not actually granted by the US, uh, but it, it looks pretty pretty clear that they were already working on this uh, research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology with the help of American scientists. Um, uh, the, the spike gene uh, is something that has not appeared in nature. 
uh, it is a very, very slim chance that those things would array naturally. And it's ridiculous, virtually preposterous to think that those things would appear in nature right after someone had <laughs> applied yeah. for a grant yeah. to make it, that that unnatural uh, uh, spike gene uh, to, to to make a uh, you know a bat coronavirus infectious to humans. By the way, the, the SARS coronavirus is not um, uh, you know the COVID uh, coronavirus is not infectious to horseshoe bats, which which some people have claimed would be the natural reservoir. They they don't they can't catch it. Only <laughs> only humans. Uh, are highly susceptible uh, to this thing, not bats. So I think I think we're, we're at a point now where um, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to hold out uh, on this idea that it was a natural uh, um, uh, emergence, a zoonotic spillover. Many of those people are heavily conflicted because they were getting their livelihood from grants to do very risky research uh, on on these types of viruses, and so you know. Um, as people have said, it's, it's very hard to get someone to uh, uh, see the truth in something that their, you know, their, their paycheck depends on them not seeing. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's go back to Taiwan for a moment. Uh, should it have military conscription under the kind of threat that it uh, seems to be living? Absolutely. I'll tell you, I, I visited Taiwan uh, over the summer and I brought with me a number of senior Israeli retired military officers, uh, as well as um, a former national security advisor uh, of Israel. And we, we met with uh, senior political leadership, but also senior military leadership in Taiwan. And it was a very uh, fruitful discussion because I think, you know, they've heard, the, the Taiwanese have heard a lot from the Americans over the years, but they don't talk to the, the Israelis all that often. And there's, there's a lot of natural respect for the Israelis, given the similarities of their situation uh, to Taiwan's. Look, you know, in, in many ways, the 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 Israelis are in a worse position because they have land borders with their you know with so many of their enemies, but um, uh, and, and and Iran looming off in the background uh, uh, feeding those enemies. So here you had a discussion, and and one of the things that that emerged very quickly was the necessity of uh, uh, the, you know the, the need for conscription, uh, ideally for a smaller reserve force than Taiwan currently has, but a much better trained reserve force. Taiwan has, a ma has millions of people who are uh, technically uh, on, on call in the reserves, but many of them only train every other year for a little bit. Some of them haven't trained even that much. Israel's military is primarily a reserve military. Uh, they have a, a small active duty uh, IDF force but they really train well. They, they, you know, you do uh, two and a half plus years of conscription. You then, you then belong to a unit for, for many years after that, uh, where you know the people, you know your neighbors, you know you, you, the, the people that you went through uh, your boot camp with and did your initial conscription service with. Uh, I, I think that um, I, I've got, I've actually asked one of those Israeli officers, uh, Kobe Maram, uh, who is a former IDF colonel, his, his sons are fighting in the current uh, fight on the northern border against Hezbollah and also against um, the uh, Hamas terrorists down south. Um, I asked him to, to co-author a uh, chapter in a, in, a, in a book that uh, Hoover Institution Press is going to publish um, uh, later this year. Please give um, us the title. Uh, We're all in yeah, favor it, of plugging. Here you are. Here you are. What's it called, man? It, it's called The Boiling Moat. 
urgent steps to defend Taiwan. And the boiling moat Great is a title, by the way. That's a fantastic yeah. title. Go on, what, tell us more. It, it, I, uh, the, the the title, I have to credit uh, Kwai Tong, who's the, a Han Dynasty first century uh, diplomat who advised um, uh, Chinese uh, generals that you don't want to attack cities that have erected metal ramparts and established boiling moats. You want to find other ways of, uh, of either subduing or, or uh, dodging uh, direct conflicts with those, those countries. And the, the, the phrase he used was... Uh, Jin Cheng Tang Chi, and Jin Cheng Tang Chi means uh, metal ramparts and boiling moats. Taiwan, unlike Israel, Taiwan, unlike Ukraine, is blessed with this incredible geographic ally in the form of the Taiwan Strait. And that is what um, could be turned into a boiling moat in the event that China attempts an invasion. What does we, it need? Have, what does it need that it hasn't got already? I mean, it must presumably well, have lots of mines and uh, underwater drones and all of those kind of things. Yeah, they need to do more undersea, unmanned undersea work. Taiwan's invested a lot of money and time and effort into manned submarines, and I, 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 I'm sympathetic with, with with the effort because it's been hard for them to get that kind of support from other countries. But uh, these submarines uh, are not going to be nearly as um, effective as uh, turning quickly to an unmanned program. Um, certainly anti-ship uh, anti missiles, cruise missiles that can be launched from shore, not only from fast attack boats that, that Taiwan has these uh, fast, small, uh, very, very dangerous uh, boats, uh, dangerous to China. But uh, unlike Ukraine, we, we have to also be honest with ourselves that Taiwan is not going to be able to hold out on its own for terribly long. Uh, in, in, we're going to need for the United States, as well as for Japan and, and perhaps other allies, uh, Australia comes to mind, to intervene on Taiwan's behalf. But Taiwan has to be able to fight long enough that we can get um, a force uh, assembled and, and apply that mass to the problem. That We've discovered that there are uh, things that we can remedy in our own arsenal in the United States that would be incredibly problematic for China in the event of an invasion. And those Chaz, things give, are, give us a few. Give us a few. Um, well, I'll give you one. One, one is something called the LRASM. I think it stands for Long Range Anti Ship Missile. This is a this is a missile that traditionally is launched from other ships, but you can launch them from bombers. The United States Air Force, we've we've determined, is a decisive player uh, in this conflict. But the Air Force is not equipping or training as 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 if it knows that it is a decisive player in this conflict. Uh, LRASM missiles are purchased in small quantities by the U.S. Navy to be launched from surface ships, but the U.S. Navy is going to have a hard enough job. We're going to have our attack submarines uh, in the fight. They're, those are going to be very dangerous for China, but we don't have enough of them with enough ammunition uh, to give me confidence that that's going to, going to settle the matter. We're going to need our long-range bombers, the B-1B bombers, B-2s, even B-52s can be fitted to carry from the United States uh, these LRASM missiles. There's a, there's, a, there's a cheaper version of it. LRASMs are expensive. There, there's something called a uh, propulsion uh, or propelled JDAM, Joint Direct Attack Munition. It's basically taking one of our traditional standard 500-pound laser-guided bombs, but fitting it with a rocket that will allow it to fly a couple hundred miles or so and to target ships 
And China is really, China is fearful of these types of weapons, but we're not procuring them. The United States Air Force is not procuring these weapons. I, and I think it's because they seem to think this is the US Navy's problem. If this is the US Navy's problem, then we should be prepared to lose a hell of a lot of ships and sailors. I don't think that's smart uh, maneuver warfare. We need to have the, our Air Force involved. And, and is the United States uh, uh, as, a, as a society, as a, as a government ready to lose that much over Taiwan? Could you, uh, could you see an American president being uh, essentially backing off and not wanting to? Well, look, the, the key question to ask is what does it take to, to achieve deterrence? Because I'm confident that deterrence has worked. We know it's worked until now. I'm confident that it can be sustained. I'm confident that it can be sustained using weapons platforms, you know, bombers and ships and, and equipment that we already have in our arsenal, but, but which lack sufficient munitions. They lack the sufficient supply of torpedoes and, and anti-ship missiles and the like. And, and that, that, is, that is our vulnerability that we need to rapidly, we should declare a state of emergency in order to try to achieve um, a rapid scaling together with allies of our defense industrial base and, and you know, try to pull off you know, the equivalent of a Rosie the Riveter moment here. These things are much more complex to make. The supply chains involved in making modern uh, laser-guided munitions and so forth, is, is a, it's a much longer supply chain and timeline than what we saw uh, you know, with traditional dumb bombs during World War II. So let's get on that. Let's get ahead of this problem because that is what's going to determine whether we deter or not. The key, the key thing to remember, Andrew, is that deterrence, this is, a, this is a, a, a stupidly obvious statement I'm about to make, but we forget it frequently. Deterrence is a hell of a lot cheaper than war. It is a lot cheaper than war. And we were, we were reluctant to, to, you know, at various points in the Biden administration and the Obama administration, early, early in the Trump administration, although President Trump, to his credit, did provide uh, lethal munitions to Ukraine, uh, including the, it's now a household uh, uh, term to say javelin anti-tank missiles, right? No one knew what a javelin anti-tank missile was. Thank goodness we provided those uh, to Ukraine uh, during the Trump administration. The, these types of things are cheap, cheap, cheap investments uh, uh, compared to the cost of, of a war. So what the real question is not, is, is America uh, willing to sacrifice in a war? It is what are we willing to show that we're ready to sacrifice in order to prevent a, a war that would, um, uh, you know, take us back to the worst periods of the 20th century. And you seem to feel that that time is running out, and and the statistics definitely support you on this. The Chinese Navy a decade ago was um, one third of the tonnage. Now it's half the tonnage um, of the U.S. Navy, and obviously it's got many more ships now. They're building aircraft carriers at a much larger rate than uh, than the US navy as well i mean and our royal navy the british uh, navy is a tiny um, essentially a sort of um uh, organization just to protect our own shores and it doesn't really do a great job of that either um you know what's the do you, do you feel that there's a sense of uh, of time running out for the west well i i the the key lesson that we should keep in mind is uh, the, the idea that we should achieve a new offset strategy. You know, Bob Work, who was a, a, a former Marine and, and, and deputy 
uh, Secretary of Defense has has written in the past about this idea of a third offset, and he, and he's right about this. And, he, and and there's there's good news in this concept, right? During the Cold War, um, the Soviet Union began to uh, outproduce us in in a in a lot of their conventional um, uh, manufacture of munitions to the point that we became very concerned that we weren't going to be able to stop a uh, conventional invasion of Western Europe. So we ended up uh, committing to what was our first offset strategy. Basically, it was a way of asymmetrically um, uh, offsetting Soviet advantages, military advantages. And we did that through nuclear weapons. We created a superior nuclear arsenal uh, that uh, really created all kinds of planning problems for uh, the Soviets if they were to try to commit to a conventional assault on Europe. And so the Soviets spent many, 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 many years trying to catch up, you know, that there was the missile gap and they, you know, and eventually they did catch up, at which point we pulled off our second offset, which, which sort of reversed the play on them. We, under particularly the Reagan administration, we made significant investments in conventional capabilities that were so uh, high tech and so fearsome, uh, you know, making use of, um, uh, uh, better intelligence and targeting and communications and you know laser guided munitions and uh, basically bringing the computer age to to the military and also that, a six hundred ship navy that John Lehman uh, built up for Ronald Reagan. Well, I thank mean, God for uh, John Lehman. Thank God yeah. for John Lehman. But but the, the, uh, the we we can't ignore that fact. But but the the truth is that the Soviets in in general were out manufacturing the United States, but it was inferior equipment that was um, offset by smaller numbers of significantly uh, qualitatively better weaponry uh, developed by the United States. And, and in fact, it began in the 1970s and it, and it accelerated during the Reagan 80s. And so what we need right now is, is not to say that we are going to manufacture as many ships as China. China has, uh, by, by, by one measure I saw, China has 200 times the shipyard capacity of the United States. It's a shocking statistic if that's wow. wow. It's a US How... Navy statistic, by the way. Uh, it was a way. slide that leaked in which the Navy confirmed um, uh, that it's 200, 200 times. But look, the, look, the Chinese are studying Mahan, right? And, and they're studying some of the same people that Teddy Roosevelt was, was looking to, uh, you know, 120 years ago. And, and, and what I would contend is that they might be making a mistake by doing that. If, 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 if this were, you know, if this were the 20th century, I'd say, you know, yeah, China, China should build a, a 400 ship Navy in, in the 21st century, a 400 ship Navy a surface uh, fleet, heavy Navy looks like a hell of a lot of juicy targets for rather cheap munitions to take out. I don't think the answer is a uh, 400, 500 ship Navy at this point. It is new technologies that are qualitatively um, uh, less expensive and but very very deadly uh, to this. It's really it's kind of a vanity project for China to build a 400 uh, or 400 plus ship navy. I think um, I'm not sure it's going to serve them as well as they think. It's not going to serve them as well as the Great White Fleet and and serve Teddy Roosevelt or John Lehman's 600 ship navy served the United States in the 20th century. Um, uh, we still need to be uh, improving our our shipyard capacity uh, dramatically. This this is something that that really bothers me. We, we have a, an inherent advantage in our undersea capabilities. We should keep keep um, driving those capabilities. But um, but I don't think the answer is a 400 ship surface fleet.
Tell us about uh, China's relations with its neighbours. It seems that virtually nobody uh, in that region likes China. You uh, have any number yeah. of neighbours, India, Vietnam, Australia, Japan, the AUKUS, uh, and so on, who are perfectly understandably and reasonably uh, fear China. Um, is this is this an inevitable result of all that wolf warrior talk? Um, or is there something uh, more profound going on? Look, I, China challenges the notion of sovereignty. It, it, without any sense of irony, Xi Jinping is parroting, uh, maybe, maybe unconsciously, similar slogans that Imperial Japan used in 1940 when it was pushing for its greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. Uh, Xi Jinping has, has, you know, has a speech that that's referred to as the Asia for Asians speech. Um, you know, he he. Uh, his embrace is not a comfortable one, and it undermines the idea of sovereignty. It ranks countries according to size and strength. China is at the top of, of, uh, of the hierarchy that, that Beijing is promoting uh, regionally and with the idea of, of, a, of a global um, uh, play. And so, you know, because we're, we're a friendly democracy, we get a lot of public criticism from friends and allies and partners around the world. Uh, but in and China doesn't get as much in private. Uh, the conversations from Asian diplomats are, are quite telling. They are they're deeply concerned. Their concern about the United States is not uh, that we're going to over embrace them. Their fear of is that the United States is going to abandon them. They're yeah. afraid of us going, and they're afraid of China coming. That's mm -hmm. a very different kind of a dynamic, and uh, and and so we we really need to. Uh, um, we, we really don't want to see uh, this field because, um, you know, settling for some kind of a grand bargain sphere, spheres of influence model is is going to really be the end of us. It's going to spell the end of uh, uh, the, and, the end of us eventually. And uh, and there are some areas which ought to be in your sphere of influence that uh, are clearly negotiable at the moment. Latin America, let's talk about that, where Xi has been 10 times, where China's um, invested 700 billion, uh, the Cuba spy facilities, the Panama Canal choke points. You know, is the Monroe Doctrine still fit for purpose? It is. And, I, you know, I, I give President Biden... Um, credit for for some aspects of his policy. I, I think he did a poor job ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but has done an admirable job of um, of, of really trying to shore up Ukraine and, and help the brave people there uh, defend their future and their 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 country. Um, Latin America is a is a dark spot on uh, the Biden administration. I don't know why they dropped the ball. We had a pretty good thing going to the Trump administration. President Trump was active uh, in his personal diplomacy with Latin American leaders. We had launched this thing called Americas Crece, which means the Americas grow. Um, uh, we, had, we had appointed to the, uh, the, to, to the multinational bank for the region, an, an American for the first time, who was really helping um, a lot of the, the, the pro-free market, pro-democracy leaders uh, in Latin America, sort of empowering them and helping them with, with uh, development and funding uh, to keep to keep uh, uh, more problematic uh, models like China's One Belt, One Road thing at bay. Uh, Maduro was pretty scared of the United States. Uh, he was on his back heels. Uh, he was afraid that we, we might even come in there and, uh, and give uh, Venezuela back to the Venezuelan people. Uh, Cuba certainly 
uh, wasn't doing things like it's doing now, which is they're negotiating to create a military base for China uh, right off the coast of Florida, which is uh, just, you know, are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> it's like... What, what mean, would the Biden administration do if that uh, agreement went through? I, I don't I don't know. They've, they've not given me much confidence that they even care about this because they, they tried to cover it up. And then they and then they tried to say, well, you know, a lot of this started uh, quietly when Trump was in office, which uh, I, I've, I've asked around uh, and can't find a single official who is working in the intelligence community or the White House who, who believes that that was the case. They, they, they've really tried to downplay it. Uh, I, I don't understand that. This is this is this is like Soviet active measures kind of stuff, you know, where the Soviets are mucking around uh, uh, here. I mean, talk about echoes of the Cold War. Uh, I mean, this is an another unironic um, sort of uh, emulation by China of of the Soviet approach. Um, we we need to just how, sorry. Uh, how would again, how would back, a, back to red lines, right? No, yeah, no, totally. But how would a incoming Trump administration? Uh, react to a Chinese naval base on Cuba? Well, look, I I, I don't think that we can accept it. Um, I, I, I'm speaking for, for, on behalf of the United States <laughs> when I say we. No, no, I understand you're not speaking on the behalf of the, of the Trump. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's uh, look. I I think that we could. Um, uh, I think we we could create um, all sorts of problems. I think that we could uh, begin using some of the same techniques. Uh, along China's periphery that we've used in decades past. Um, I think there's a lot more we can do in the information space. You know what China fears more than anything is, is, is that it's people having free access to information, a free flow of information from outside China's border and, and the ability to communicate among citizens um, privately without the fear of, of being snooped out. We, we're not even trying to, to create technologies uh, to poke holes in China's great firewall. I think we should be doing that irrespective of whether they try to move forward. Uh, but we can we can turn up the amplitude, we can turn up the volume on activities that uh, would give China an incredibly hard time, the Chinese Communist Party a hard time, because what they fear more than they fear us is their own people. We don't have that problem. You know, um, I would love to see us start uh, injecting uh, freer flow of, of information, not disinformation. That's the Chinese play. I'm talking about real information, news, um, you know, the ability to communicate uh, uh, across borders and within borders. Uh, that, that would be a starting point for me. And, and I, would, I would signal to China that we, could, we, we can pull down their firewall if, if they uh, are, are dumb enough as to, to try to uh, build a military base in the Western Hemisphere. Well, let's just um, look at what might happen, what could happen if there were a 1989-style um, democratic movement inside China that uh, that the CCP couldn't hold down. Uh, what would happen? Would you get a? Would you get warlords? Would you get a single democratic um, unitary state in China? What? I mean, yeah. Just yeah. imagine well, look, the what what Taiwan has shown is that. Ethnically Chinese people are pretty damn good at democracy. They might be better at it than we are. I mean, judging by like <laughs> the Economist Intelligence Unit and some of these other indices that measure democracy, Taiwan beats the United States on every measure. They're the most democratic country in Asia uh, by a long shot, um, and, and and they've done it in a way. They've done it. They've done it in style. Forty percent of their parliament is female. Uh, 
uh, I think the United States might be 25% of our Congress. Um, women are the mayors of major cities all across. They've elected a woman to the highest office twice now um, in, in Taiwan. So they, they know how to do democracy. They know how to do liberal democracy. Um, and I think that that, that, that model is, is what really, really rankles Xi Jinping. It's that more than any other uh, dimension that has obsessed him so much with the idea of snuffing out um, uh, Taiwan's democracy. So I think that what would come afterwards would be something that the Chinese people determine. Uh, you know, maybe it, it uh, is a, a single um, uh, country. And by the way, if, if you want to see a, a powerful country that that has an incredible positive impact on the world. Imagine a democratic China. And I mean, you just think of the entrepreneurialism, you think of the, the culture, the effects of, of a free and open China on the world. I think that China could hold together as a single country, as a democracy. And I think they would do pretty darn well uh, at that. But uh, it's also conceivable that it would, um, that it would fracture into uh, uh, more of a European kind of model. You know, maybe it became sort of a confederation. Um, uh, you know, Europe, Europe has done uh, reasonably well as, as, a, uh, as a union uh, where the country still maintains sovereignty. They maintain their own militaries, uh, but they uh, have a, a shared currency and, uh, and an easy passage over borders and, and these types of things. That's, that's a possibility as well. But... Um, I don't think <clears throat> that, uh, you know, you hear, you hear this hand-wringing that, my gosh, the Communist Party is terrible. Yeah, it's committing genocide. And yeah, they've, they've killed 50 million of their own citizens through starvation. And they had a cultural revolution. And now they're, now they're intimidating their neighbors. But imagine if, it, imagine if you didn't have the Chinese Communist Party. Then, then it'd really be terrible. I mean, there's no basis for that sort of analysis that I hear. It's very flaky, lazy analysis that I hear from time to time. I, think what it, about I, I don't think it's... Right. No. Um, what about the other analysis, the sort of Noam Chomsky uh, narrative, which says that um, uh, Belton Road has failed, the wolf warrior talk is over, the demographics are against China, their population's dropping, it's going to be 700 million by 2050. And basically, the US is building up China as it needs an enemy, uh, because China's had no history of imperialism and desire for world domination what do you what do you make of that um i, I wish i wish that were the case I, I i would love not to have china as an enemy <laughs> let me tell you my wife would really love for us not to have china as an enemy because i spend so much time thinking about it, it, it the, the the aspirations we should not um uh we should not underestimate we shouldn't overestimate um the the chinese communist party uh, it has all these inherent weaknesses. I think that those demographic statements and the fact that their economy is losing all this dynamism as it, as it centralizes its model again, it re-centralizes, all that's true. I, I think over the long run, that's not going to work out well uh, for, for China. The, 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 the question is, what, what happens between now and then? And, and that is pretty much the life expectancy of Xi Jinping, is, is, is the same number of years between now and then. And Xi Jinping has big aspirations, and they are dangerous. They're dangerous to uh, the, the notion of sovereignty. If you read some of some of these internal textbooks that uh, Chinese uh, PLA generals have to read at the National Defense University, and by the way, they're all called Xi Jinping Thought uh, series of textbooks. 
they explicitly say that their goal is to replace the Westphalian order. They want to do away with the idea of sovereign nation states and replace it with a China-centric, Sinocentric global empire. I mean, who's in for that one? You know what I mean? It's like, we're not just talking about democracy versus authoritarianism. We're talking about the basic building blocks of, 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 of the modern, you know, the nation state is a basic building block for, for diplomatic discourse and, 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 and the balance of power globally. They want to undermine that. They say so explicitly in their internal documents. So, so I, I just don't uh, think that we... Um, I think we should do Xi Jinping the courtesy in, a, in effect. I think we should show enough respect to say that what he says internally are things that he means. I don't think we should say he doesn't really mean it or he can't, you know, he's, he's never going to be able to do that. I think he very much intends to do those things. And, and so what about the Thucydidean trap argument? This uh, idea, Graham Allison's great book um, entitled The Thucydidean Trap, it looks back to Athens and Sparta essentially being sort of almost forced into into actual war against one another. One's a rising, the other's a falling power. One is an envious power, uh, the other is a glutted power. And that there's something inherent in the uh, human condition and in history that means that the United States and China are going to have to be enemies and possibly also um, military uh, confrontation between them. Well, yeah, Graham Allison's a terrific uh terrific thinker and terrific person. I, I, I reject the premise that this that that's the right model to describe the current order. I, I don't think China uh, is truly a rising power. I think it is a, um, uh, a dangerous um, early superpower that that um, is maybe peaking. It might be peaking and that is capable of doing tremendous damage with the power that it has amassed, but it is it is not looking at a comfortable ascent um, un, under its current leadership. It is not looking at an ascent. It is looking now at a uh, at a slow roll downhill. And the question is, what damage can it do in the meantime? The United States, uh, meantime, you know, is showing all sorts of uh, of strain. Uh, but but I still think that our system, uh, God willing, if we continue to preserve it, uh, is is going to do remarkable things in the 21st century. So I, I I used to tell some of my Asian diplomat counterparts and friends that China is a lot like the Yellow River that flows you know across northern China, and the United States is more like the Pacific Ocean. The Yellow River looks placid on the surface. You can't see; it's murky. It's it's it, it looks like chocolate milk. You know, it's got so much of this this lust uh, silt in it, and and it, but it looks very placid. But under the surface, violent things are happening. It, it, there there are terrible pressures that are building up in the form of invisible dams that suddenly uh, reach a reach a crisis point and change the course of a river in, in ways that are quite dramatic and that flood and kill hundreds of thousands or millions of people. The United States looks rough on the surface, just like the Pacific Ocean. But if you've ever gone scuba diving, you know that even in a rough sea, as soon as you get under the surface, everything goes quiet, it becomes placid and calm. And, and so I will, I will choose the Pacific model with, with our rough currents on the surface over over the the illusorily uh, placid yellow 
river. What should we do in Britain? We've we've uh, we've had a spying scandal at Westminster. We've had a lot of universities take a lot of Chinese money, um, and uh, uh, seem to be bending over backwards to uh, to China all the time. We've had lots of concerns about defence industry uh, suffering industrial espionage from China. Is this something that that you're concerned about? And 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 what can we do about it? Look, I, I I remember when when I was in office and I was making visits to the UK, I, I would sometimes hear the, the, just the self doubt, and and I, I was often this role of bucking up, you know, my my dear friends uh, in in London to say, come on, you're this is Great Britain, you know, you, stop stop being defeatist, um, stop thinking that that you need that your 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 future model is to try to become more like Switzerland. You know, uh, you know we'll, we'll try we'll, we'll try to attract a more oligarch money and 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 become a, a banking center and and kind of become more neutral. That that is that is not going to work out well, and and it's not necessary. The United Kingdom has through its history, its its key role, even post Brexit, um, the UK has an incredibly important role to play as a leader of Europe, um, and and I think. I think the UK should wear that. I think it should wear its history. I think it should wear that legacy and um, and and uh, be, and basically be more self -confident. just and sort of man up when it comes to these spying scandals and universities and defence industry. Absolutely, come yeah, on! Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is like why yeah. we're making it easy for for our adversaries, yeah. and it's and it's because of yeah. the self doubt. Yeah. Let's let's uh, come on. Let's let's have the courage of our convictions. The UK is. Is, is one of the great leaders. Tell me, last question. Well, last question before we get on to the ones I ask every one of my uh, um, guests. Uh, what do you see as the major differences between a Trump-China policy and a Biden-China policy? Yeah, I think, well, I think if President Trump is reelected to a second term, the, I, I suspect that the first thing he's going to focus on is, is trade. Uh, it's what it animates him. Uh, he he, um, uh, it's what animated uh, a big part of our, especially our early China policy in the first Trump administration. Um, I, I imagine that he will accumulate leverage in the form of uh, more restrictions on uh, Chinese exports to the United States. Uh, President Trump cares a lot about the auto sector; he always has. Uh, China right now is um, uh, has grown to be the dominant uh, EV. Uh, manufacturer and you know Tesla's just been overtaken uh, by BYD and BYD is only one of a of a of, of a great number of Chinese companies that make pretty good EVs, right? Of course, they've done that with the benefit of subsidies. Uh, they've they've um, uh, also had the benefit of uh, the transfer of American technology for their batteries and all and and for the EVs generally to do that. So I would imagine that if President Biden doesn't move first uh, with sort of preemptive tariffs, I think President Trump will slap uh, significant tariffs. I don't know the number. I can tell you that I've, I've heard uh, the US auto sector um, uh, people quietly mentioning that they would need to see 50 to 200% tariffs in order to uh, wow. halt the onslaught. 200% for the cheap EVs and 50% for the high-end ones that compete with Tesla and, and uh, combustion engine cars. Um, I think China is going to be looking to try to find ways to manufacture those EVs in the United States. Um, 
President Trump was never against the idea of, of Japan, for example, building auto plants in the US and making good cars using American labor and, and, and so forth here. So that's going to be part of the game. It's going to be a, a game of trying to China trying to move its supply chain and, and manufacturing closer to the US and probably into the US um, in order to uh, jump over this tariff wall that I think President Trump is going to be uh, uh, quick quick to seek to enact. I Look, I, I would imagine, I, this is just speculation on my part, but um, Section 301 of the Trade Act was the tool that President Trump used to initiate his uh, trade investigation in 2017 that resulted in, in significant tariffs. That was an investigation into Chinese systematic theft of American intellectual property. The Biden administration said that they were going to open their own Section 301 investigation investigating Chinese unfair use of subsidies, but they didn't do it. They never did it. And my, my guess is it was a battle between the U.S. trade rep and the Treasury Secretary in the Biden administration, and they sort of had a stalemate. Uh, uh, Janet Yellen wanted to repeal uh, Trump-era tariffs. Catherine Tai wanted to keep them. And President Biden probably uh, decided, okay, <laughs> here's, here's the compromise. We'll keep the Trump tariffs, but we're, we're not going to move forward with a new Section 301 investigation. If, if Trump is reelected, I would imagine that he would pick up that Section 301 investigation and proceed to investigate Chinese uh, uh, subsidies, illegal and, and, and unfair subsidies. And that would lead to a new round of tariffs and maybe other remedies as well, like outright bans on certain imports from China. If, uh, if Trump um, were re-elected and were to veto further uh, American support, military support for Ukraine, do you think President Xi would see that as a form of uh, weakness, Western weakness, and, and therefore be emboldened with regard to Taiwan? Or do you think he'd be so um, nerve-wracked about the evident um, uh, you know, personality yeah, it, traits well, of, of Trump that he wouldn't um, want to uh, pursue the Taiwanese you know, President Trump has, has stated his desire to try to negotiate a, a ceasefire. Um, he, he will he will have to proceed very very carefully uh, if if he, if he doesn't want to inadvertently send a signal of weakness uh, to see that that we just didn't have the stomach uh, for you know backing you know European countries against invasions from from Russia. I, I I think when from you know the public statements President Trump has made, he's talked about what motivates him is the desire for there you know to be peace right i mean that's a, that's a good goal that i think we all are, are in support of but the only way that that you can negotiate with russians or or the chinese communist party is from a position of strength and that means uh, you know if, if i were uh, setting out to to try to negotiate an armistice or something i would i would want to increase my leverage by giving even greater firepower uh, to the Ukrainians as my first step. Give them the ability to really um, um, give the Russians a bad day. Um, give them things that the Biden administration has been reluctant to give. The Biden administration few, sort of- Few of these, uh, few of those El Razums might uh, sure, yeah, be a useful exactly. thing for the Ukrainians well, you know, to get. They're, they're land, uh, land targeted variants of that thing called Jasms as well. Uh, which is basically the same thing, but targets land targets. Uh, I think we should we should build a position of strength, um, and then also be ready to provide. The only way that a peace is going to hold, the only way that a peace is going to hold, is if there is a, a a credible, real security guarantee for for Ukraine. 
uh, uh, at the end of this thing. So wh whether that means bringing them into NATO or it means that the United States uh, puts troops in there and and says that we will fight if you guys come any closer uh, beyond that that new DMZ or whatever it is that that, that is negotiated. Uh, but if we don't give the guarantee, a a ceasefire will be temporary and will be followed by something worse than what we currently have. So what history book or uh, biography are you reading at the moment, Matt? So I, I've just reread uh, Jeffrey Blaney's book. I, look, this book is really something else. This is the second time I've read it. I, I it, my, This new book that I've just written that, that I told you about, um, The Boiling Moat, uh, to, to defend Taiwan, I have a chapter dedicated to Jeffrey Blaney uh, and and that pulls many of his insights. The third chapter of the book is about many of the myths that we still tell ourselves about wars, that he was able to um, uh, really obliterate some of these myths. And, and some of them are very surprising. They're counterintuitive. The, the idea, for example, that wars are accidental or unintended. Um, he, 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 he did an incredible investigation uh, of the causes of all of the wars and also the causes of the peace that followed the wars, all of the virtually all the wars of the last 400 years. And he could not find a scenario where a truly accidental war took place. The, the consequences of wars are, are frequently accidental. The, 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 uh, the loss of a war is always accidental when someone loses one, but the, the start of wars are deliberate. And he, he did an incredible job of, of uh, showing that. One of the other remind, things- Remind me the name of the book, sorry. It's called The Causes of War. And, and I read the third edition, which came out in the 1980s. Um, uh, if I can uh, prevail on, on Jeffrey to, 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 to you know, update it to a fourth edition, yeah. um, the world would be better off for it. I think this should be required reading for anyone who wants to do statecraft. Um, but it's a, he writes it almost like a, like a detective uh, uh, story where, where he's, he's trying to investigate what really caused the wars to begin, the mysteries of large wars, um, you know, wh why they end when they do. Um, and, and one of the other things is that we like to use this word balance of power. I think I just used it in this interview. Um, but balance of power connotes this, this image that, that the more equally matched countries are, the, you know, the less likely there is to be conflict. In fact, that's frequently the opposite is true. It is when you have a, a very significant imbalance, a decisive imbalance in power uh, that, that peace uh, between those two countries prevails. And it's one of the reasons that I think Taiwan has, has uh, prospered over these decades after World War II was because until now, the US and China were not equally matched. China knew that it was going to suffer a terrible defeat if it messed with Taiwan. And it's now that we are more closely matched than ever that the odds of war is rising. Uh, yes, absolutely, and and sort of back to the Thucydidean trap in that sense. What um, is your is your favorite what if? What if of this your counterfactual that you enjoy thinking about? Oh boy, yeah, that's uh, a great question. I mean, what if um, what if the what if the Tiananmen massacre hadn't happened in 1989, but but what, what if those protests that led to the Chinese Communist Party's massacre of Chinese students, what if it had happened 10 years later or even 15, 20 years later? Would, would the um, 
would would that have irrevocably changed China uh, in 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 the way that the Soviet Union um, uh, really came to an end? It's it's one that I wonder about. You mean you you think the CCP might not have unleashed that massacre in in its central square ten years after nineteen eighty nine? If the protests hadn't happened then, in other words, if the protests had happened a decade or more later, uh, when people people had uh, more means uh, to communicate, you know, uh, like they had really in the late '90s when the internet was really taking off in China for the first time, uh, you know, sort of sort of late Hu Jintao, the aughts before Xi Jinping took over in 2012. What if that had been the big democracy movement? Might it have stuck? And and uh, actually succeeded, and might China have uh, the Chinese Communist Party have, have have had fewer means or been more reluctant uh, to gun down in the internet age um, a thousand uh, or more of, of its uh, children? Um, uh, maybe fascinating. Maybe maybe exactly. Remember the eighty nine. The Chinese uh, protests in eighty nine came before uh, the, the November eighty nine Berlin Wall. Right. This was the spring of eighty nine. It was the it was the forerunner of, uh, of of a lot of the movements that uh, that um, swept across the uh, communist bloc. Matt Pottinger, thank you very much indeed for this incredibly stimulating and really, really interesting uh, episode of Secrets of Statecraft. Andrew, it's always great to, to be with you and, <laughs> and, uh, and I love listening to your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Matt Pottinger. On the next Secrets of Statecraft, my guest will be Elliot Abrams. Elliot has held several important posts over the past 30 years, including Deputy National Security Advisor and US Special Representative for Iran. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.